Hello, and welcome to episode 75 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is multi-award-winning journalist Rowan Kallick, a veteran analyst and author, and currently an industry fellow at Griffith University's Asia Institute. Rowan Kallick, how are you? Hi, Salvatore. I'm really well, thank you. Um, in Melbourne, we're all happily out there free to go as we want, more or less. Good to hear it. Well, we're going to move from talking about the People's Republic of Victoria to the People's Republic of China. Uh, there's been so much news this year coming out of China, the Evergrande collapse, the crackdown on video games, banning of the tutoring industry virtually overnight, semiconductor champions being allowed to fail, the, the temporary disappearance of Alibaba Chairman Jack Ma, cross-strait aggression. It seems like everything is happening. Rowan Kallick, what is going on in China? Well, we're seeing Xi Jinping, the uh, General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, consolidating his power ahead of very crucial party congress, which happens every five years, uh, a year from now. He had to navigate, first of all, the centenary of the party uh, in mid-year. Those events are always create some vulnerability for uh, the party. Anniversaries often attract criticism and uh, can attract awkward, what they call mass incidents and so on. So he wanted to make sure he was in full control of that. And uh, there's been, therefore, he's been on the front foot. He's a front foot kind of guy. And he's, uh, he's pushed into the world. So he wants the world to adapt to the party rather than the party to have to adapt to the world because his key, his key aim is uh, to, to have the party be in a position to control its own destiny within China and outside because this is a globalised world. China can't completely lock itself away. So that's been a crucial thing. He's also moved within China to subjugate the uh, Western parts of the country under a sort of Han ethno-nationalist uh, crusade in Tibet, Xinjiang. And then the, the third step, the more recent one that you alluded to is uh, business. So this is a big uh, and risky venture on his part. Uh, trying to wrest control of the business sector from the entrepreneurs uh, to uh, comment to, uh, to the party in effect. And he's come up with this formula of common prosperity, which harks back to the Mao era of the 50s. And uh, he's holding out the prospect of everyone else benefiting from the filthy rich being forced to uh, spread their uh, spread their wealth around so that's the idea and this is a very uh, difficult uh, thing to pull off because he doesn't want to impose property taxes because all sorts of information will emerge about many people in 
the party's middle and senior ranks, what do they own, what prop how many properties, how did they get it? And then uh, he doesn't want to force local governments to allow migrants to, to be able to legally reside and call on local services because they would jack up too. So he's finding it uh, quite difficult, but he's in charge of the rhetoric. And we've seen that very big time in the last few days with the sixth plenum or the sixth meeting of the party central committee of uh, uh, about 300 odd people that, that uh, meets between those party congresses. This sounds really dull to most uh, people outside China who aren't sort of party wonks as someone like myself is to an extent uh, but it's crucial because it provides the setting and uh, enables him to push forward his real interests are uh, in history in ideology in education and uh, he fights against historical nihilism because of course he's a he's a marxist and uh uh, Rana Mitter, um, a British sinologist, uh, uh, has recently said she has given himself full marks, not a bad phrase. And, uh, and so uh, controlling history in a Marxist sense is not just the past, but the present and the future. We control the destiny. We ex can explain exactly what's happening. And so there's been a, a resolution, historical resolution passed in the last few days in Beijing by the top uh, echelons of the party. There was one in 1945 uh, with Mao installed at the start of the great civil war, which led to uh, the victory against the Kuomintang, the nationalists in 1949. Then 1981, a rare, a situation where the party conceded it had made some mistakes and Deng Xiaoping emerged to open the doors to Chinese people to prosper. And now we've got this one. And uh, in some ways it's elevating Xi even above Deng to the level of Mao, installing him in canonical history. Uh, the um, China policy, uh, quite a good, a good analytical organization has said this is like putting him on China's Mount Rushmore. And uh, <laughs> so, but, but yeah. What I don't understand is until this year, most international affairs analysts would have thought that the technology industry was a foundation of China's power and of China's challenge to US dominance. Yet we've seen these designated uh, semiconductor champions be allowed to fail. We've seen Alibaba uh, come under attack by the central government. Uh, we've seen even you know, WeChat's uh, parent company be bullied into submission. Uh, this doesn't seem like a, well, it doesn't seem like a, a, a winning strategy for China in its geopolitical competition with the West. He, uh, Xi Jinping is convinced that uh, the party knows best in, in all areas. So it knows actually how to control risk, you know. It, 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 and while I agree with you, I myself uh, uh, had thought she had sensibly left 
the uh, the tech giants to one side because while some of the uh, physical platforms were just borrowed from American, largely American inventors, uh, they devised some very interesting business strategies to um, commercialize them and, and make them succeed in a remarkable way. Uh, but of course, the, 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 uh, the Chinese state had also protected them and kept out their chief competitors from America and Europe. Um, but I think the time had come, uh, the time has come when she has felt he has to have the last say in every area of life. And he's devised this new uh, great plan for the economy called dual circulation, in which uh, China is more protected from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune than the rest of the world, um, as we saw in the uh, global financial crisis, which was the event that really decided China, they're on the winnings, they're winning, that socialism is the right way to go. And uh, so there's this one, the, the main circulation is domestic, protected circulation, with the uh, production, innovation, the market, and then there's the internationally connected part. But he's not letting companies go overseas to raise funds even uh, the, significantly these days. And so they're being kept at home. I agree with you. I think that this will probably be a big mistake, but he felt that he had to grapple this down. And he, he, he said this quite recently. He said, in, to, uh, in today's world, if you want to say which political party, which country and which nation can be confident, then the Communist Party of China, the People's Republic of China and the Chinese nation have the most reason to be confident. So uh, he, this kind of confidence uh, is infectious and um, also it's being imposed, of course. We're talking to journalist Rowan Kalik, author of the recent CIS paper, She Dreams of 100 More Glorious Years for the Party, Might China Awake? And Rowan, in your latest column for The Australian, you call Xi Jinping's new era policy a, quote, high stakes revolution. Just what are the stakes here and how revolutionary is what Xi Jinping has been doing? Well, the stakes are particularly high because of the extent to which he's rapidly centralized and personalized policy making and decision making. And uh, he, he came to his position telling the party elders at the time, 2011 really, that he could be trusted to uh, take corruption out of the party. They felt the party's reputation was suffering. They were right uh, because leading officials were corrupt. That leaves aside the question of actually what is the, the prime source of corruption, in my view, is being a one-party state in which you have full control. But anyway, he then started to uh, remove huge numbers of people from uh, senior positions in the People's Liberation Army, because the army of China is the party's army, it's not the state's army, 
from uh, replacing them with generals that he appointed. And throughout the system, uh, he's done that. And he, he continues to do, to do that today. And uh, in what he, he, he calls rectification campaigns, there's been 178,000 people rectified uh, uh, this year already and so on. And so he changed the, um, the, uh, uh, the guard at, at the top. So he feels he can control that sector. But the danger is there's no one to succeed him. Uh, when you personalize things and he wants to, in effect, stand on a high mountain and be able to look everyone in the eye, they take their orders from him. And strangely, he's actually said himself, oh, I'm a bit uh, annoyed because officials won't make decisions until they see, you know, my own uh, my own script telling them what to do. Well, that's because he set he set it up like that, and so people are not making decisions, and people are worried now. What will happen uh, for the succession? He's likely next year when the party congress meets. I said this huge event and endorses him for another five years, in effect, another 10. Mind you, he'll still only in that 10 years be similar age to Joe Biden today. So, but if, so if he keeps fit, he's gonna keep going because if he stops, if he stands still, what's gonna happen to him and his family? Uh, this is, uh, these are big questions if you become a dictator, but he, he's a kind of odd dictator in that He's a dictator on behalf of this party that he sincerely serves and he sincerely believes that China needs the party. And at the centenary, they all stood up and sang this song, you know, without the Communist Party, there will be no new China, meaning no prosperity. You wouldn't have a good life. And so you can't separate China from the party and that uh, the party is now, as I said in that earlier quote, leading the world in, in the way in, in the future. But this is, this is high risk. Um, and try, will the, uh, the demography is going against him. Uh, the working population is falling already. Young people are lying flat is a phrase, not really keen to do things, to expose themselves, to run risks. And you have to be a party member now to, to achieve anything significant. Uh, and uh, so I think uh, he, he's got a lot of challenges. The economy is slowing. There's uh, big, as you say, Evergrande, the, uh, the big property giant and other property companies are in trouble um, and people don't have anywhere really to invest apart from in property. Mm. So middle class is now jacking up. And I think there's some of them again will once COVID doors open and that allow them to leave, they'll slide away, they'll slide away. And uh, we'll see again, Chinese students uh, coming back to uh, Australia, despite the big freeze between Australia and China politically, uh, the, the middle class will want to slide away and uh, uh, give themselves different options from this China, which is heading to something, we're not sure what, but uh, some kind of trouble 
may be in store, but she will be in charge. He'll have to cop it. So people blame. He wants all the praise for everything great that's happened. He's got to cop the blame similarly. Well, will she be in charge? Our, our good friend and, and longtime supporter, Anthony, couldn't be here today, but he actually fed through some questions via email. And he wanted to know how important are factions within the regime? What are their linkages? And is a coup d'etat possible? Oh, well, history has shown that it has been possible. So in China's history, um, the number of smooth successions, even within dynastic imperial China, comparatively few. And uh, only really one uh, in the in the communist dynasty era. So yes, there is potential for trouble. I myself am not convinced that there are people um, plotting that they have a capacity to do anything. He has uh, removed as far as possible faction because he's got on top through unbelievably uh, powerful tools of surveillance and control uh, through spending vast amounts of money uh, on, uh, on innovation in terms of online surveillance and so on, facial recognition technology, making it very difficult for people to talk to each other. The higher you get in the party actually, the more difficult it is to plot. And uh, people will, will be finding it very hard. And there were previously reasonably well charted uh, factions. There was the Twin Pai, the uh, Youth League that Hu Jintao led, and there was the Tai Zedang, the, the, uh, the uh, princelings that uh, Jiang Zemin well, not really a princing himself, but he they coalesced around him. They're still alive, those figures, but uh, seem to have quite little authority. I'm not really convinced that people are, uh, but she himself is highly nervous about what, what might happen. And uh, all the signs are that uh, he, <laughs> he guards, he, he guards um, his own safety very, he, takes this as a, a very important priority. But I, I don't think that there, there are many people in the party here right now planning to get rid of him, but many have personal friends who've been removed for corruption, which is kind of also what is corruption and what is disloyalty in a, a regime which doesn't really have the rule of law there's no independent courts. They're all part of the uh, uh, legal and political commission of the party. So um, I've got a, I'm have got. a party official. My friends have been removed. Uh, my family is worried. People may stand back if, if eventually it comes to it, the time of succession, uh, it's time to change again. We may see that, but I'm not betting on it. Our uh, viewer, Benjamin, wants to ask you uh, what level of influence or coercive control 
Xi Jinping may have established, whether directly or indirectly, personal or via policy, over Western political leaders and Western influencers? Oh, well, uh, actually, not, not much control directly. Uh, he's tried his best in terms of commercial coercion with Australia is a good example, and certainly weaponizing China's economic heft has proven to be a fairly successful tool. So about one trillion US dollars worth of loans have been administered through the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, which is she's hallmark uh, international policy, which has succeeded quite well and has uh, has has brought China into a very solid position at multilateral arenas like the UN. Uh, uh, many states automatically vote for China. You know, interesting. Papua New Guinea, just uh, Australia's closest neighbour, uh, voted for China uh, uh, on, on, in a resolution about Hong Kong, for example. And uh, so he's got more. He's got more capacity to influence those states to which he's lending a large amount of money, apparently for infrastructure. Uh, there's some tears before bedtime in all that. Uh, less influence in the West, but uh, gradually it's uh, it's it's uh, it's come through. Uh, for example, Australian universities have uh, become very dependent on Chinese students. And uh, so in my view, they have tended to uh, diminish their capacity for analyzing contemporary China. That's a sort of example of, of how things happen in, in the West, uh, step by step. Leaders, I'm not so convinced, and we can see in Europe how things can change, People in democracies, uh, where, pe where people can find out things for themselves, uh, don't tend to be applauded for being co for being coerced. Lithuania is a great example uh, recently, and um, but China, of course, has kept uh, many Western journalists are now out of China, not able to analyze it, but they're still writing, and we're still talking here today, aren't we, uh, Sabaton? <laughs> Absolutely right. Uh, I have a question from another viewer, uh, Sino Zenon. Uh, he notes that, or he or she actually, it's a pseudonym, uh, notes that she has not left China in two years. Is this due to any fear of machinations against him if he were to leave the country or even the possibility of a, an assassination attempt? No, I, I don't think it is. I, uh, that had, thought had crossed my mind, but I think it's more to do with setting an example in terms of the COVID policy. COVID's been something of a triumph for uh, Xi. So at first it wasn't. At first people rightly blamed uh, the party for trying to cover it up in uh, Wuhan itself. But then uh, I, I suspect Wang Huning, the, the great ideological um, maestro of the party of the last uh, couple of decades, probably himself came up with this idea of she being called the people's leader. 
leading the people's war against COVID and wartime uh, calls for tough tactics. And so China is the only major country in the world still determined to eliminate uh, COVID. And if you're an official in a small town, there's one case, you're in real trouble. So that, of course, that leads to questions about how much reporting, how good the reporting is. But uh, he's trying to eliminate it. Uh, that will cover the Winter Olympics in Beijing in February, conveniently preventing uh, awkward awkward uh, questioning journalists being uh, given visas or not given visas to go there and so on. So it's going, I think um, he's declaring solidarity with the people of China of not traveling, no contact. And uh, of course, uh, to an extent, China has been uh, I, in, lock, in a form of lockdown for a long time. So this new form of lockdown uh, because of COVID is something that comes quite easily and readily. And, but the party has been applauded for it. I do believe comparatively few deaths. And so uh, that's been a success for him. And I think he's, by staying there, he's, he's telling the people of China, I'm staying with you. We've done great. The rest of the world going to hell in a handbasket. Mm. Rowan, we're rapidly running out of time, but I do want to squeeze in at least one more audience question. I'm sorry we won't get to all of your questions. Thanks, everyone in the chat for uh, being engaged. But uh, we have a question from Marcus. Uh, following on about your comments about factions within the CCP, how good a grasp do we really have on who are the senior key players today in the CCP and how much power they have? It's a, uh, that's a great question. It's more of a black box than it has been for many decades or longer. I actually believe that uh, we know less about decision-making at the top in China than we have since dynastic imperial days. And uh, uh, we used to, uh, in the days even of Hu Jintao, the predecessor, one could uh, uh, foreign diplomats, corporate leaders, Chinese and foreigners, journalists could talk to academics and others, uh, bureaucrats, who would be talking to the advisors of top leaders. And so one will get a sense of what was happening. I myself had found that was quite hand, handy because I got a sense of what, what they knew, what was happening. So we weren't really being surprised. But now, yes, it's a black box. So a good example was the national security law imposed in mid-2019 uh, on Hong Kong that caught pretty well everyone by surprise, no one really knew. And uh, in a very strong discipline at those levels, prevent anything leaking. Uh, surveillance prevents those contacts. So we don't really, we, we don't really know. There are seven men on the Politburo Standing Committee. No woman has ever been elected to these Politburo Standing Committee in parties 100 years. And uh, so some of those are close to uh, she himself, but 
there's no one of the, the generation down who's eligible really to succeed him there. So uh, he, he has Wang Qishan, who's the vice president. He's close to uh, Wang Qishan and has been for some time. Smart guy. And uh, I, as I mentioned, uh, Wang Huning, uh, not related, uh, who's on the Politburo Standing Committee, is a kind of ideological uh, thinker. And uh, Liu He, who's the uh, uh, economic uh, guru, uh, is someone's advice Xi Jinping clearly takes. I think those three are probably the closest. Rowan Kallick, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Salvatore. Thanks, uh, everyone who's been listening. And uh, please uh, get in touch if you want to uh, ask more. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Thanks for your generosity there. Thanks also to our producer, Nico Malian. Our executive producer is Max Hawk Weaver. The director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Babonis. You can find us next week on On Liberty, but you won't see me. My colleague, Glenn Fay will be interviewing Michael Johnston of Victoria University of Wellington, who is co-host of the Free Kiwis podcast. You can find Glenn and Michael here next week at our usual time on On Liberty.